You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. And today I wanted to more or less continue the series on the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Uh, I'm not titling the episodes like that anymore, part one, part two, seven-headed, ten-horned beast, this and that. Uh, More or less now I'm just saying Daniel 11, Revelation 12. But what I'm doing in each of those chapters is basically testing the theory that was developed uh, from that series about the nature of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast and testing that against other relevant passages. So last week we did Daniel 11 to see if it made sense there. Now we're moving on to Daniel, or rather, The book of Revelation, the first chapter, which is relevant, is Revelation 12. Just a brief recap of more or less what I've come to understand the seven-headed, ten-horned beast to be in terms of the symbolism. I'll just read what I wrote uh, a couple podcasts ago. Uh, In the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 12, 13, and 17, the symbolic beast image, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, represents Satan. Technically, the beast is a serpent, specifically a dragon. The seven heads are both seven kingdoms and seven kings, though the terms are used interchangeably in several occasions. The ten horns on the beast are all on a single head, the final head, the head that represents the Antichrist himself and his future kingdom. Throughout the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is called the beast, or the first beast, though the symbolic beast, the seven-headed, ten-horned thing, is technically Satan. The word beast in subsequent verses in Revelation comes to refer only to one of the seven heads of the beast, i.e. the Antichrist. This is because the person of the Antichrist and his kingdom is the only relevant manifestation of the beast in the context of the book of Revelation, one way to think of it as it, as if the seven heads are seven occasions in history where Satan has manifested himself or his kingdom in some way, the seventh head being the last occasion. We also understand because of Revelation 17, where the angel interprets the heads to be kings um, and also says that there is a chronological sort of order to these heads. Five have fallen, one is, one is yet to come, and when he does come, he must remain a short while. Um, that these are past empires, past attempts in which Satan has uh, attempted to do two things mainly, that is to control the world and to eradicate Israel, to to in some way destroy the Jewish empire. So that's an important thing that we're going to talk about too, that that is what specifically connects these empires. My uh, understanding is that the order of those empires are the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, the one who is is the Roman Empire that was in John's day. The one who is yet to come is obviously the Antichrist Empire, but it is also somehow qualitatively like the Roman Empire. And that also hasn't changed. I still believe that it's some kind of, um, I would say that the reason that it's the same as the Roman Empire primarily is because of Daniel 7, that that is it also uh, encompasses all of the great sea like the Roman Empire did and no empire has before. That's one of the main reasons it's different from other empires and one of the reasons it's the same as the Roman Empire, that it controls essentially all of the geographic area of the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea in Daniel uh, 7. There is a pretty fundamental difference though in 
sort of describing the nature of that seventh head and how it chronologically relates to the Ten Kings and some intricacies there that I have, that this study has changed my mind about, and we'll get into that as we get into it. But that's the basics. So the problems with Revelation 12, as far as I, not just my view, that I think everybody kind of has this problem, no matter what view that they take with it. And to boil it down, the question is, are there three seven-headed ten-horned beasts, two seven-headed ten-horned beasts, or one seven-headed ten-horned beast? Uh, because we see this seven-headed ten-horned beast in three different chapters, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. And each of those occasions, it's just a little bit different. And those differences, you know, are pretty, pretty interesting. So, for example... In Revelation 12, the it's a great dragon. It's got seven heads and ten horns. That's always the same. But here it's described as a dragon. Uh, in Revelation 13, it doesn't mention dragon or serpent. Uh, it instead seems to describe it as a leopard with bare feet and a lion's mouth. And, you know, it's still got the seven heads and ten horns, but it looks different. Okay, so it doesn't call it a dragon. In fact, Revelation 13 seems to distinguish that beast from the dragon, which in that, um, you know, it says that, uh, and to it, that is this beast, the seven headed, 10 horned beast and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, I think that could easily be folded into the idea that it is the dragon, but we'll talk more about the details of how that works later. Another and probably more significant problem is the number of the diadems that are in view. That is, crowns is just another name for uh, crowns, diadems. In Revelation 12, there are seven heads and ten horns. Now, in Revelation 12, it doesn't, it, it doesn't give us a distribution of the horns. Um, you know, you could read commentaries and they, you know, people that understand Greek and understand what's behind the text here. And they'll say, there's no textual understanding of how those horns are dis distributed. You basically have to figure out some way because there's only seven horns or rather there's 10 horns and seven heads. So you basically can just guess how that's supposed to be distributed among the 10 heads or rather the seven heads. Or I think what's more likely is that you go back to Daniel seven and you see that uh, one of those beasts that is the final beast had all of the horns, which gives you a very solid understanding of how the horns should be distributed on these this seven-headed ten-horned beast in the book of Revelation. That is to say, all ten of the horns are on the final seventh head. And that seems like a pretty solid conclusion that a lot of people have come to. But it's the crowns that are a bit of a problem. So in Revelation 12, it says that the crowns are Revelation 12, 3, another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. So now we've got seven diadems, seven crowns, and seven heads. Seems fairly simple there. The crowns go on the heads. Um, but contrast that with Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. So now we've got a different number of crowns, 10, on its horns. We know that there are 10 horns, so in that case, all 10 of those go on the horns. There's no crowns described on the head. So it's a, so it's a very interesting difference. And those two things primarily, 
the idea that uh, the dragon seems to be described as distinct in some way. You know, you wor- even though you kind of worship one, you worship the other in Revelation 13. But particularly the ten diadems issue and the seven diadems issue are one of the things that people have said, well, these are different beasts. Um, you know, maybe the Revelation 12 beast is Satan, and we know that because Revelation 12 says directly, this is the ancient serpent, the the Satan, you know, it doesn't give you any option. It's definitely 100% Satan in, in uh, Revelation t- uh, 12. But then they come up with different ones for not just Revelation 13, but Revelation 17, where another seven-headed, ten-horned beast is there. All that to say that over the past week of research on this issue, I was disheartened to find so few commentaries even mentioning this. And the ones that did were, to say the least, of no real help. In fact, I was about ready to give up on this and think, well, I guess it's just on my own. I've got to figure it out uh, here. But I had remembered a guy named Darren Ball, who um, is a blogger. His blog is the Orange Mailman blog. I've mentioned him on the podcast before. I remember him on a post talking about something about the crowns before in Revelation 12. And I remember not liking it because I was like, oh, I haven't quite figured out what's going on there. Anyway, so I I looked up his blog and I typed that into the search uh, bar there. And turns out he had been doing this study 10 years ago and going through all, having all the same problems and trying to figure it out and reading these sort of hard to find commentaries about stuff like that. And lo and behold, he had come up with essentially the same theory that I've taken the last few months to come up with. So that was great confirmation, but he also had done work that I hadn't done on this final stage of the Antichrist kingdom, which really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. So a lot of kudos to Darren over there at the Orange Mailman blog, and let's get into this. I suppose we need to start off by reading the chapter. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of stars from heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she... Uh, uh, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she used to be nourished for 1260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels uh, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe unto you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down unto you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured uh, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that 
the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea, and this is where the transition from the next chapter happens, and he stood on the sands of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. First, let me deal with something I'm sure a lot of my listeners know about or have heard something about, which is that this sign in heaven is a celestial event that uh, certainly uh, might have been the, the, the star of Bethlehem that uh, heralded uh, the birth of Christ in the first century. And there is some intricate things that you can look at about how this uh, Jupiter, I think it is, goes through Virgo and stays in there. And it's the great red dragon. Draco is a constellation. And there's some threads that you can go and look at the Maseroth. Like I think it was Amos talks about it. Basically, constellations are for signs. And there does seem to be, and obviously it was a sign of Jesus' birth with the great star, uh, which was the Magi followed, which were probably, uh, if you will, spiritual descendants of uh, Daniel uh, from Babylon. But Nevertheless, I, I take that very seriously. I think that uh, Michael Heiser has done a pretty interesting presentation, which you can watch on YouTube, which goes through all the details about that celestial event. The, the punchline, if you will, of that is that uh, Christ's birth was truly, I mean, nobody thinks it's December 25th. That's just a thing that that was a tradition to mostly appease the uh, Roman citizens who had been told that they no longer got any of their uh, holidays anymore. Uh, but his true birth was probably um, September 11th, uh, 3 BC, I think is what, uh, what the number is. And in any case, whether that's right or wrong, I think that it is clear that this in some way is describing those events. There are two big caveats there I want to bring up. The first is that though the first part of Revelation 12 uh, can be interpreted in light of physical stars doing things uh, and being probably a prophecy, rather it wouldn't be a prophecy, would it? It would be a uh, clarification so we know exactly the date of Jesus' birth for whatever usefulness that can be to us. Um, It is more to the point uh, describing actual symbols that can be interpreted in the Bible this woman with the stars in her head or the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, which we're told is Satan. Satan is not a, a number of stars that look more or less like a dragon in the sky. So my point is that the, the actual interpretation of these symbols are to be interpreted through scripture and have meanings to real things, not stars. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that this doesn't necessarily mean that this has any future significance. So I say that because this celestial sort of dance, uh, which in- occurred with Virgo and Jupiter and Draco, that uh, heralded probably the uh, birth of Christ in the first century, happened again in 2017. So there was a great, uh, you know, expectation in 2017 that, you know, something was going to happen. The rapture is probably the most common thing people thought. Um and obviously it didn't happen or nothing significant to Bible prophecy that we can tell happened in 2017. And I would say that 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 my view is that it has no real relevance to us in the future. Things that happen celestially um, reoccur 
because everything up there is round and everything orbits a thing. So it just all, it may take a lot of time, but with the software, we can see when that thing happens again. Even the most sort of oddball comet stuff are usually on some grand circuit uh, around, you know, just have a long orbit. I think there's probably exceptions to that, maybe interstellar objects and other things that may be one-offs. But I think for the most part, things just reoccur. More to the point, there isn't anything in the text that would suggest that we need to look at this as a prophecy or look forward to this happening again or anything like that. It seems to be in context about a thing that happened in the past, that is to say in the first century, which of course we know it did. Really quickly, I wanted to move on to the identity of the woman in this chapter because even though this doesn't really uh, apply to what I'm mainly wanting to do with this podcast and talk about how Revelation 12 applies to the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. I do want to touch on this because my view changed just slightly. I would have said before that she is uh, Israel, just open and shut case, and that is mostly because of Genesis uh, 37, 9 and following, where Joseph has the dream, uh, his 12 brothers, which are, of course, become the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, being the stars in his mother and father's head, and this whole language issue that's obviously connecting these two passages and of course the context in which uh she is giving birth to obviously the messiah which makes sense of course the church doesn't give birth to the messiah uh but there is some language here that seems to suggest she can be equated with the church certainly the rest of her offspring is the church the followers of jesus so uh, i would say it's more nuanced is how i've changed on this um darren ball uh, in the Orange Mailman, Mailman blog, had some points on this too. He quotes Alan Haltberg, who has also a more nuanced view that it's like also goes back from the Garden of Eden and then goes all the way forward to, you know, parts of the church. Basically, he would sort of describe it as the messianic community. Um, anyway, I'm not sure. I don't want to commit to anything there. I would just say it's definitely Israel, but it's also probably a little bit more than that. I'd need to devote a little bit more time to this study. But as I say, it's not necessarily relevant for what we're doing here. All right, so I'm going to just try to explain what I think is happening here. Why the seven-headed, ten-horned beast looks a little different in Revelation 12. He looks like a dragon. His crowns are only seven, and they're on seven heads, versus he looks like a lion, leopard, bear, seven-headed, ten-horned beast in the next chapter. He rises out of the sea. He is got crowns on ten on the ten horns. What What's that? And why in maybe even in Revelation 17, he doesn't have any crowns on those horns. And we'll talk about that. Are they all different? What do I think is happening there? So first, I would say that I believe that they are all Satan. They are all different pictures of Satan. And Satan, also it's important to get that he doesn't look like a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. That's not his appearance. It, he is described that way for a very specific reason which we'll look at. But I think he probably, if I was going to guess what he looks like, he looks probably like a cherub. He, it's described as an ancient cherub in different places. So he's probably, um, you know, got the four faces and everything else uh, that's described in other places. So that's probably what he looks like. I don't know how much variation there are uh, in cherubs or if he even is a cherub. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but he looks like an angel. He doesn't look like the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. We know that this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, because of other things that we can see, the five have fallen, one is, one is yet to come. The other uh, interpretations of these heads being kings in multiple occasions, both in 7 and 11, that they have to be kings. Now, the only thing that we can understand that this is, for some reason, Satan is described in the book of Revelation, the, the key aspect that scripture wants us to know about him is that he has manifested himself in the form of human kingdoms in the past and will in the future. And I think it's significant that we connect that these 
human kingdoms had certain uh, qualities that you can, I think, biblically say. For example, the attempt at not just world domination in an empire form around the Mediterranean, but I think more specifically, they are uh, kingdoms that tried to eradicate Israel. And I think that's in even more interesting when you see in Revelation 12, that's exactly the thing that it highlights. Not only is he sitting in front of uh, Israel trying to devour the Messiah, but he also gets extremely angry because he's not able to kill her and then is enraged when she is protected. So he, in this form of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which is almost singularly described that way to show its attempts at eradicating the people of God, is most infuriated when that thing is thwarted. Um, so that's an interesting thing. It's not necessarily hugely relevant, but I think it's important. Um, but what is happening here? So it's both a chronology, the crown issue is a, is a chronology issue and a, a perspective issue. It's chronology in the sense that we see him clearly in the first century in part of Revelation 12, the first part of Revelation 12, when he is uh, waiting for the, uh, the the Messiah to be born, is this great red dragon in the first century. He is, his crowns are therefore on the heads. Um, again, following this thread, those heads are uh, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome in that day, Rome was the seventh head, all had the crowns on those heads. That's where the authority lied in that sense. When he comes out in the next scene in Revelation 13 and arises out of that sea, it's both a chronological and perspective shift. We're also told in Revelation 12 that this is all in heaven, in heaven, in heaven, and this happened in heaven, and this happened in heaven, and we're seeing this from heaven's perspective. It further reiterates that in the context because there's a war in heaven and all this being thrown out of heaven. He's finally out of heaven and everything else. It, not just in the, in the past, but this is all the future casting out of heaven because it's so tied with, you know, woe unto you in the earth. He has, um, he knows he has a short time. And what does he do with that short time? He's equated with a three and a half year period. I could go into the theology of how that casting out of heaven and the war with Michael and his, and, and that third and all that stuff is a future event. Uh, but even if you wanted to make it sort of a dualistic kind of thing, maybe he was cast out in some sense in the past, and maybe he'll be cast out in a more complete sense in the future. I could go along with that. But at least you have to have some war with heaven and casting out and short time and wrath because he knows he has a short time in the future too. I, that is an unquestionable part of theology, but whether or not this could have happened in the past, maybe post-Job, because he still had options to uh, to accuse the brethren with Job in heaven and, and these kind of things. So anyway, um, so we're seeing it from a heaven, heavenly perspective. In other words, this is what Satan is described as in heaven, his symbolic uh, appearance. And then coming out of the sea in this, what would be the final manifestation. And I almost get this picture, and I think it may be what's happening. At the end of Revelation 12, you kind of see this Satan essentially standing on the shores of the sea, watching this final earthly manifestation, which is symbolically understood throughout the rest of the book of Revelation as the kingdom of the Antichrist. But it is also Satan. Uh, it is the worship of that thing, that, that monster that comes out of the sea in the last days, which is then referred to basically synonymously as the Antichrist. He does this, he does this, he does this, but is empowered by Satan, which is what Revelation 13 is all about. It's in those, those other passages that we talked about in which it says things like, uh, um, you know, this, the, the dragon gives 
him his power and the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to this beast. And that is essentially just describing the nature of what that beast, the body of the beast, if you will. Obvious connections to Daniel 7 and the appearance of this beast having, um, you know, body like a leopard and, and feet like a bear and all the characteristics from Daniel 7 is in a sense that Remember, the, the, the symbolism of these heads, the five of the fallen, one is, one is yet to come. They are all uh, of these past manifestations at the same time. It's, it's directing us to further understand this development of what the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is. It is these five fallen empires, plus the one that was and the one that is yet to come that must remain a short time. It is all of them in one beast, but contextually, it's mostly about the Antichrist, that final head, because that final head is the only relevant you know, it's the star of the show of the book of Revelation. It's the only one that matters. We're not going to talk about Assyria in the book of Revelation. It's that final manifestation that, that this is all about in the book of Revelation. So it's not surprising that it zeroes in on that head of, the, of this beast from the sea, this physical final manifestation of Satan, his last attempt to do the thing that he's tried to do all throughout history. So it's not surprising that it focuses in on that last head with 10 horns and 10 crowns on the horns and says, this is the beast that we're going to be dealing with for the purposes of this chapter. So the interchangeability with the dragon and Satan in other places, for example, I think that there are problems with this. For example, it does speak of the dragon and the beast using those terms like in the, I call it the ritual, where they are calling uh, the kings of the earth to battle against uh, of Jesus at Armageddon uh, by the frogs out of their mouth. In that scene, there's both the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, in which case it's like, well, are they separate? And, and of course, these are just symbols. The seven-headed, ten-horned beast, that's not what Satan looks like. The Antichrist is going to be a human, acting as a human being. He's going to have a real kingdom. He's not really a seven-headed dragon. So his empowering in the real world is he's a man who is either possessed by and empowered by Satan in some real way. That's really what's happening. So you don't want to take these metaphors too far. And I think the Bible gives us understanding and glimpses of the real thing. I mean, it calls, it starts to call him, him, using the pronouns him to speak of the Antichrist. It's all the things that happen personally to him. So I think that goes without saying, I just wanted to make sure there are some problems with this view that I want to discuss in detail, but before I do, I want to bolster my case that all three of these seven-headed, ten-horned beasts are the same beast, that is to say, Satan. And I think that can be done by comparing scripture with scripture. So, for example, the beast is described as being scarlet in Revelation 12. We read it, the scarlet uh, red dragon. And in Revelation 17, it is also scarlet. It uses that same word. It's It's red. So that is some circumstantial evidence to connect Revelation 12 with the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast that Mystery Babylon is riding. So you might say, well, maybe just Revelation 12, the Satan beast, and Revelation 17 are the same, but maybe the Antichrist and Revelation 13 beast is not the same. But then we have this term blasphemous names, which in Revelation 13, it says there are blasphemous names on the heads of that seven-headed ten-horned beast. But in Revelation 17, the one mystery Babylon is writing, it also says that it has blasphemous names. It says a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. So it seems like a pretty clear connection there between Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. And it continues, the earth dwellers marveling at the beast because it was and is not 
It's a pretty significant set of circumstances to have uh, earth dwellers marveling at this seven-headed, ten-horned beast because, and for the reason uh, in Revelation 17, because it was and is not, and in Revelation 13, the reason that the earth dwellers were marveling was because it uh, had a deadly wound that was healed, which you can probably equate those two phrases. In any case, that's the same there too. So now, further evidence to connect Revelation 17 with Revelation 13 being the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast. So it seems very clear to me. I think one would be really hard-pressed to make, in light of these kinds of things that I'm talking about now, to make these beasts be different. It's much more difficult to make them be different, in my opinion. Uh, the similarities are too great versus the differences, things like a different number of crowns on one head versus a different number of crowns on the other, other head, which as I'm going to submit, can be more understood about the nature of the way that those kings get their crowns and when they do in relationship to the final 70th week. Those kind of things are what's going to be in view there. And that's a better way to interpret this than they being different. So before I can get into the kind of problem with that, I need to further explain the idea of why there are the crowns do not appear on the ten horns until later. And that is a combination of things that happen in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 11. In Daniel 11, it describes these ten horns very clearly. It says they are, uh, well, it says, The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the lord of lords and king of kings. So it, it, it seems very obvious that we would see a different sort of manifestation of the crowns in light of this language about their not having royal authority and power at this moment. And of course, in Revelation 17, it's not pictured at all with any crowns. And that's because the biography in this chapter, Mystery Babylon, probably extends well into that first part of the 70th week of Daniel before the last three and a half years. So the Ten Kings, uh, though I will argue exist at that time, they have not been given royal authority. And so it's not, um, and so not only does that bring that up here in the chapter where they don't have, where the seven headed ten horned beast does not have crowns, it's incredibly important that it would not have crowns at this point because it doesn't really receive them until as it says here, one hour with the beast, whether that's referring to the final three and a half years in total, or really if it's just referring to that very end in which uh, Armageddon happens. I'm not quite sure of that. My guess is that it's only after the midpoint and the declaration of deity that this new thing happens with him being the ruler of the ten, um, but their authority being given to him may or may not be speaking of just something at Armageddon. It's a nuanced thing that I'll look at in more depth when I get to Revelation 17. So the problem I have with this view, as, as many boxes as it checks and as many problems as it solves on the one hand, uh, the main issue that I see with it is the inconsistency or seemingly inconsistent view of the uh, first century version of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Um, if it's true, then you would have to ask the question, why does the seventh head uh, in Revelation 12 the one that's waiting for the uh, Messiah to be born in the first century. Why does it have ten horns? You know, a seventh head you can make sense of. It's got the Roman Empire, which is currently existing in Jesus's day. That makes sense. It should have seven heads, but it shouldn't have ten horns. Um, if it is a consistent, if this theory works, uh, Darren put it this way 
in his uh, in his research. He says, the Roman Empire has never had a ten-nation division within its boundaries. The ten-nation division is yet future. Each vision of each beast was the beast, and this is his conclusion, each vision of each beast was the beast in its final form. For instance, the Greek Empire had four heads, yet it did not start out having four divisions. It was the Greek Empire in its final form, speaking of Daniel 7. The Roman Empire will have ten kingdoms in its final form, so the vision that Daniel saw is accurate. So, in other words, he would argue that Revelation 12, that beast has 10 horns there, even though it's in the first century, is because it will ultimately have 10 horns. And this is what I've said about that in my notes here. This seems like a keen insight to me because it was a problem I had in understanding Daniel 7. Why show Greece in that image of a four-headed leopard? We know that the final form of Greece is biblically validated as a fourfold division, the four generals of Alexander, because of the emphasis of that fact in Daniel chapter 8, where it discusses how, yes, Greece starts off as a goat and a, and a notable horn, but then four horns uh, show up. It's the four generals of Alexander. It's very explicit there. So in Daniel 7, when it describes, obviously, Babylon, Medo-Persia, which nobody has trouble with, it's, you know, a bear, and it's truly in its final form there, too, if you want to think of it like that, the bear with the three ribs in its mouth, the understanding of that is the conquest, the final conquest, if you will, of Medo-Persia. It, it does the same thing with Greece and showing it as a four-headed leopard. For example, we know the leopard concept is speaking of speed because of the validation of that in Daniel 8, talking about the goat uh, going over waters without stopping. It, it describes that goat as very fast, which is further interpreted as Greece later on, and Alexander the Great. But also, it's showing it with the four heads. Another thing that is described in Daniel 8 about how the four horns grew up out of the notable horn that was broken off and everything else. So it's showing Greece in Daniel 7 as both Alexander the Great and its long descendants of that, the four heads, which are further described in, in Daniel 11. So it's an interesting concept that these, and then of course this is further uh, understood in, in the final beast, that it's its final form that's discussed there. So it's it, it, it's a bit, it's enough biblical mandate for me to say that makes sense. It, it doesn't feel like a, um, you know, something I'm just doing to, to get around it. And it's not that big of a problem in the first place. It's just, I want it all to be tied up in a perfect bow. All right, moving on to the thing that I changed fundamentally about my view. And that is the, f how the last empire functions and what I mean by that is kind of, we need to go to Revelation 17 and this uh, enigmatic uh, uh, series of, of verses, which says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So let me describe what I think is happening here. I think what I would say is the same as last week, the, the belief that I had, which is that the seventh head is the Antichrist's kingdom and the Antichrist himself in the last days, the one that will remain a short while, uh, is the Antichrist's kingdom, which in some sense is like the revived uh, Roman Empire. That's the seventh head. And that's where I would have stopped last week, but now I have a more uh, detailed view of that, which I think to really, really helps to clarify what is happening in these last days, which is that 
there is a kingdom, a satanically inspired kingdom, i.e. a head, uh, that exists before the Antichrist comes on the scene, and that it, biblically speaking, is a full-fledged satanic kingdom. Let me, uh, and it's only when the Antichrist takes over those ten kings through conquests in Daniel 11, uh, the subduing of the three kings in, da in Daniel uh, 7. Let me read that real quick so we can so we can make sure we're on the right track. Then there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. This is the, well, that's the Roman Empire, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. That's probably just the Roman Empire in the first century. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise. So there's the out of this kingdom, that is to say, the revived Roman Empire, 10 kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. So, so the Antichrist, the one that comes out of the 10 horns, is essentially an 11th horn. Uh, he shall arise after them. He shall be different than the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, etc. So we know, and this we know this from the vision too, that, that horn uh, comes after the ten kings are there. So that probably is what is meant by when it says, um, the beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So it's almost as if, if it's saying that, there, that the beast kingdom of the ten horns the world will have a ten-nation confederacy around the Mediterranean, I would say completely surrounding the Mediterranean in the last days. And it will be there, and it will be considered a satanically inspired kingdom. I would submit that therefore it must persecute certainly somebody, the Jews probably, and it will be attempting to control the whole world. That That's what the logical outgrowth of this theory would mean. That that exists before the Antichrist subdues three of them and takes over that area in a new and final eighth king, but one of the seven situation. And uh, that's probably in which then he gives them authority for one hour, maybe a later thing than that. I'm not exactly sure about that. Uh, but, but what this means to me in terms of functionally, and this is maybe where some of my biases come in, Okay, so everything up until that point, I feel like, is just totally biblical. And, I mean, I would submit that what I'm about to say is biblical too, but you get what I mean. It's This is where some of my other theories start to come in. If that's true, then it almost does give credence to the idea that the Antichrist is appearing to try to be a savior in Daniel 11. He looks like he is doing the world a favor. He's defeating the enemies. If... If we can say that the Ten Kings are counted as a satanically inspired empire pre-Antichrist, and which the only thing, only real thing I can say that, that connects all those empires of the seven heads was a, an attempt at an eradication of the Jews, then the Antichrist coming in and doing what seems to be an odd thing, that is to say, destroying the enemies of Israel in the three king subduing process, which I believe is, is pictured in Daniel 11, then, we, then it makes sense that Daniel 11 is a picture of a false Messiah attempting to be perceived as A, being the victor of, the, of a false Gog-Magog war, which I would say is false. He won't say it's false, but, but he, he will appear to do that. 
his then death and resurrection uh, after that military campaign, right before the midpoint, is what really starts off the next phase, which is the mystery Babylon phase, which is the uh, which is now the worship of him is not just uh, said out no on the open. It's 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 required with the false prophet. You have pilgrimages to Israel happening uh, in this sort of what appears to be a messianic sort of. Uh, dance, uh, trying their best to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, and Zephaniah, and all the rest uh, of the millennial kingdom. So that's what I think is happening. Um, I would just to clarify, I, I think that, and Darren makes this point in the Orange, uh, the Orange Mailman blog, and I thought it was great that he made it because it was like, oh, finally, somebody's saying what I'm thinking here, which is that it's important to understand this resurrection concept as both being true in the king and kingdom situation, which you have ample evidence for. I mean, just take this 9 and 10 of Revelation 17, here's mine of wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains, a term that's only spoken of as nations in, in, in the Bible, but they are also seven kings. It's also saying there's something else. I mean, when I say that they are kings and kingdoms, and you can't say they're just kings or you can't say they're just kingdoms, I mean that very specifically. It's an important part of this doctrine to understand that they are two things. And it's this symphony of almost dualistic things that are happening. And that even goes into the death and resurrection aspect. There is a sense in which a nation has died and resurrected. That is to say the Roman Empire, which is spoken of in, in verse 11 about the eighth but the was and is not, as I've shown in another podcast, is a qualification that's supposed to be hearkening back to the deadly wound, which is spoken of as a human being, and these being resurrected. And you can, I think, follow that in the last verse of Daniel 11 to the first verse of Daniel uh, 12, and to see that there is a death right before the midpoint. I think it's very easy to connect this, uh, you know, him setting his, you know, I, I'm, go, I'm not going to go over that stuff yet, but all that to say that at the midpoint, when he declares himself to be God, it begins and sits in the temple and now declares wor uh, worship and will ostensibly say that the, you know, he won't call it the millennium, he'll call it the messianic age or eternal kingdom or whatever, um, has begun. He's God and the worship can start. The pilgrimages can start. Everybody needs to bring him the gold and silver and all the stuff that's brought to mystery Babylon. Um, so that last manifestation before the wrath of God. So there's, there's an unknown period of time after the midpoint and before the wrath of God begins. We don't know if it's hours. We don't know if it's days. We don't know if it's years, but there's three and a half years there after he declares himself to be God no one knows the day or the hour, but everyone knows that the wrath of, well, not in our current whatever, but they will someday, know that the wrath of God starts after the midpoint. Um, so how long this charade lasts, I don't know, of him saying that he is God and persecuting uh, the, the Christians and Jews and anybody else that doesn't agree with him during that time, we don't know. But um, that, that moment after the midpoint, is this eighth thing in which it's still the ten that whatever was built before, whatever that ten nation thing that existed before and was doing its thing is still geographically the same, uh, but he's now taking it over and using it as his, uh, his springboard to do his other thing. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. 
Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 